Student Union Poetry Hour. So welcome back to the Student Union Poetry Hour, everyone. As always and forever, I am your host, Jeffrey Ayers. For those of you new to the show, as everyone is, given that I have two followers on SoundCloud and both of them are bots. So uh, if you're new to the show... Uh, this is the only literary podcast that exclusively features undergraduate poets and poetry. So every week I find a new undergraduate magazine and I pick a couple poems that I think are great or interesting or fresh and then I geek out about them for an hour and it is just a ton of fun. So last week we looked at two poems from The Tower, a literary magazine from the University of Minnesota that were just absolutely amazing. So after listening to this pod, you should go back and listen to that one as well. It's so worth it. In this week's episode, we're featuring a literary journal based in St. Paul, Minnesota. From Hamlin University, we have the Runestone Journal. The Runestone Journal is a national online literary annual compiled and edited by the BFA students in the creative writing programs at Hamlin University in St. Paul, Minnesota. It features the best fiction, nonfiction, and poetry they can get their hands on, all of it written by undergraduates. So you can find this amazing journal at runestonejournal.com where you can read all the issues for free and you know what i'd recommend is going there right now if you can on your phone if you're on the commute if you're on the t just pull out your little uh device go to the runestonejournal.com and go look up volume five it's the latest one because we're going to be looking at two poems from volume five um so i just do that right now also while you're on your device I'd recommend checking out their Twitter at runestone underscore lit and on Twitter, uh, not Twitter, on Instagram you can find them at runestone underscore journal. So go ahead, follow both of those accounts, stay up to date. I've been talking far too much without reading any poetry. we got a couple of bangers for you today from volume five of the runestone journal. Let's just get it on. All right, so we got a pretty fantastic poem coming up right here. This is a poem that I chose because I felt like it really exemplified a specific kind of poetry that's becoming more and more popular, or more specifically, a type of imagery that's being used in a lot of different new poems coming from the college and undergraduate uh, scene of poetry. (laughs) Um, And so the... I don't want to say exactly what it is. You'll find out as I'm reading this. And I just want to kind of prepare you for it because I think one of the reasons this poem is really interesting is because he uses it in a different way than I think I've seen other poems use it. And I, I just found it really intriguing, really interesting. And I think this is one of the kinds of facets that might end up defining like this generation of poetry. And... Uh, I just wanna, I just wanna highlight this so maybe other people recognize it, notice it. Maybe you'll see it as you're reading other kinds of poetry. So without further ado, I'm just gonna read the poem and you'll, we'll go from there. So this poem is called "My Identity Is Cosmic" by Jasper Hardin. A constellation is recognized as a constellation, and since it's regarded as fact, there is no gray area or argument against this. Comets are just comets. The Big Dipper will always be the Big Dipper, no matter what beliefs we have down here on Earth. The stars are continuously fizzling out while I'm standing on the ground attempting to make myself as concrete and believable as a pattern of hydrogen and helium, hoping that maybe one day I'll look at myself and think I'm a quarter as valuable as what helped create the universe, hoping it will bother me less if someone looks at me and says, You're not actually a boy. I mean, you're not exactly a bundle of light spinning in and out of existence or as structured and scientific as a constellation. You can't be real, can you? It's not like you're the macrocosm that brought us all here. I'll smile at them just enough to let a galaxy spill out. So the interesting thing about this poem that I think stands out right away is that you can kind of divide it into two parts. There's the first part of the poem, which is all this cosmic imagery, and that's going to be important. I'm going to come back to that in a second because that's my first big point. And then the second part of the poem, where it's a person talking to the author, the speaker of the poem, saying, you're not actually a boy. I mean, you're not exactly a bundle of light. And it's this big, long, as it's structured in the poem, it's this big, long section that's italicized, and it kind of has a wavy structure. It's The first line is very much indented. The second line is kind of halfway indented. The third line is um, left justified, and it kind of goes back out again. And so... The first part of this poem that I really want to tackle is the 
the, the cosmic imagery. And this is the thing that I was referring to earlier, that big wave of um, th- this type of movement, I guess, in poetry that's using all of this cosmic imagery to make points or refer to these big ideas that are outside of us or that are in some ways maybe intrinsically unknowable. So I'm going to talk about that first, and then we'll move on to the second part of the poem. So in this first part of the poem, we have three big, four big maybe references to this kind of cosmic imagery that I've alluded to earlier. So we have in the first line, a constellation is recognized as a constellation. So we have, I mean, two references to constellation in the first two lines. Then there's in the, what is it, the sixth line? The sixth line, there's comets are just comets. In the seventh line, there's the Big Dipper will always be the Big Dipper. And then a few longer lines down, it says the stars are continuously fizzling out. So we have four references to these kind of celestial cosmic objects in various different ways. I think that's a very... I I might be betraying myself and showing that I'm maybe not the most well-read of poet or poetry enthusiasts out there, but I feel like this is a relatively new phenomenon where there's such constant reference to these cosmic imageries that I don't think it appears in poems that are older. Like I genuinely think this is a I don't want to put an exact year on it, but I'm going to. This might, again, make me look stupid, but I want to say 2014. I don't know what happened in 2014, but I think 2014 and later we started seeing in, in undergraduate poetry a lot more references to stars, comets, all these sorts of things. Uh, maybe if I look on Google, I'll see, like, SpaceX was founded in 2014. That might be a thing. Regardless, I think it's a really interesting trend. I also want to focus really on how the poet uses his cosmic imagery, because I think it's a little bit, um, different, though. It's not maybe something I've seen as much of, but I think it's very, very interesting, and I was was just kind of intrigued by it. So, the title of the poem is My Identity is Cosmic. This will be important in a little bit, but not quite yet. So the first line is, a constellation is recognized as a constellation, and since it's regarded as fact, there is no gray area or argument against this, which I found really interesting because constellations are like a culturally defined thing. So constellation is recognized as a fact, there's no gray area or argument against this, but the author is kind of using these absolute terms, it's regarded as a fact, there's no gray area or argument against this. To contrast with the fundamentally cultural nature of constellation, which is that, again, not all cultures have the same constellations that they look at or um, have the same names for constellations. Um, obviously, like here in America and generally in the Western world, there we use European constellations, um, which come from like the Greek gods or whatever. Uh, thousands of years ago when you know you had the greeks looking up at the sky and being like oh hey those stars are kind of a cool pattern it looks kind of like i don't know aries or something or you know what we think aries would look like obviously uh so i i just find that interesting and this is going to again play in later um but there's all these absolute terms used to use these not so uh, constant or absolute cosmic concepts. So comets are just comets. The Big Dipper will always be the Big Dipper no matter what beliefs we have down here on Earth, except for the fact that um, the Big Dipper as a concept is not actually a concrete thing. The stars out in the sky that make up the Big Dipper, what we call the Big Dipper, is a constant thing, or in a sense a constant thing, um, because they're actually physically stars out there millions of light years away. But what we call the Big Dipper here on Earth is just an idea. It's like, oh, those stars up there kind of look like a dipper. So, hey, it's the Big Dipper. Ha-ha. Um, so, yes, the Big Dipper is always the Big Dipper because the stars are always there. But the beliefs we have down on here on Earth where we call those groups of stars the Big Dipper, that, that changes over time. That changes depending on what culture you're a part of. So I, I think it's... Very interesting that the author is contrasting these ideas of 
absolute cosmic concepts with the uh, like transient nature of how we view the cosmos on Earth. Down a line from there, the speaker says, The stars are continuously fizzling out while I'm standing on the ground, attempting to make myself as concrete and believable as a pattern built of hydrogen and helium. And this is where the poem just gets really, really interesting, I think, because the author deliberately negates the... um, Oh, God. Negates the infallibility of the stars that she wants to be like so let me try to explain what i mean so this she says the stars are continuously fizzling out while i'm standing on the ground attempting to make myself as concrete and believable as a pattern of hydrogen and helium so a pattern of hydrogen and helium i think is a very obvious call back to stars so that literally just means she's trying to make herself as believable as stars and so it's really weird because she says, the stars are fizzling out, and I'm trying to make myself as concrete as those stars. I'm trying to make myself as absolute as those stars which are fizzling out. This is something I don't think I've seen many people do. Uh, because it's a recognition that on like an existential level, like these cosmic images are not constant. Yet, like the speaker of this poem is trying to make herself, or himself, I'm sorry. This is another point of the poem that I'm going to get to in a second, but... I'm honestly confused as to the gender of the speaker, and I have no idea. I, I I think I may have been flipping back and forth between saying him or her. I genuinely do not know what the gender of the speaker of this poem is, and that's something I'm kind of trying to figure out. I'll get more. I'll, I'll I'll talk more about that in a second. But basically, um, the identity. So, I, I the so obviously calling back to the title of the poem. My identity is cosmic. Using this cosmic imagery, the speaker of the poem is comparing their identity, and I assume gender identity, but I, I mean, it could be a different aspect of identity, but I believe it's gender based off of the rest of the poem um, below the second part that I'm going to get to, where they're, they're trying to make their identity as stable as these stars that are fizzling out, which seems like a awkward thing to be doing, and maybe self-defeating, because... The author has already just said that the stars are fizzling out and that they're not constant. So it just, it, it really is that contradiction that I think is really interesting. The author is attempting to make their identity as concrete as the stars and the constellations and the comets and everything else that they've re- re- uh, referenced in this poem, the Big Dipper, which like are not constant things at all i mean they're more constant than the stuff we have on earth but like i i don't know if that's the idea that the author is trying to get to they're the idea that the author is trying to get to is that we she the she he who whatever is viewing the the cosmos and being like i want to be as constant as these things that are transient which I don't know, that's such a weird contradiction. And I don't know if that's trying to get at something more, like, fundamental about identity or gender. I don't know. Like, that's that's the kind of mystery I'm living in right now as I'm reading this poem. I am confused. But we're going to move on to the second part of the poem because I don't know if there's more for me to say about this first part. But... I mean, it all kind of ties together, so I'll definitely be referencing back. But let's move on to the second part of this poem, the part where it's a person going on a long diatribe to the speaker in kind of a dickish way. So the second part of the poem kind of just goes... Um, so yeah, this is right after, and believable as a pattern built of hydrogen. So this, this is hoping that maybe one day I'll look at myself and think I'm a quarter as valuable as what helped create the universe, hoping it will bother me less if someone looks at me and says, you're not actually a boy. I mean, you're not exactly a bundle of light spinning in and out of existence or as structured and scientific as a constellation. You can't be real, can you? It's not like you're the macrocosm that brought us all here. I'll smile at them just enough to let a galaxy spill out. So this part of the poem is very much a... Um, well, it, it seems sarcastic at points, but it's like a, a response to an imagined 
person who's calling out the speaker of this poem saying you're not actually a boy, which is obviously why I think it's about gender identity. But the reason I'm confused about the gender identity of this speaker of the poem, and I want to make clear the distinction between speaker and author because um, the, the author could be writing about their own experience or could be writing about the experience of someone else, so I don't want to ascribe the author's life to the poem. But the speaker of this poem is saying um, that someone else is speaking to the speaker, which is a really confusing thing for me. That was a very confusing sentence. I'm sorry, I just said it. But anyways, you're not actually a boy. So is the speaker of the poem a girl who's trying to pass as a boy? Is the speaker of the poem a boy who has some feminine attributes and now is being told that you're not actually a boy because you don't have, you're not macho, you're not masculine? Now, and it, it, this is a kind of fundamental mystery of the poem, I guess, and I'm not sure if the author intended for it to be vague or if it's an unintended vagueness. Sometimes when you're an author, you just like write it and you're like, oh, this makes total sense to me because I know my own experiences and have my own point of view. And then it's not actually that clear to everyone else. Again, though, this was edited, so probably this is intentional. This is an intentional vagueness of the author where we have no idea if they're a um, transgender man or if they're a man who's not traditionally masculine. So, yeah, uh, we're going to look through the rest of the lines here and try and figure it out because this is a mystery I'm working out in my head right now in the podcast. So, you're not actually a boy. I mean, you're not exactly a bundle of light spinning in and out of existence or as structured and scientific as a constellation. You can't be real, can you? So there's a couple things here. Well, actually, there's really only one thing here that makes me think it's a transgender man, and that's the, you can't be real, can you? Which makes me immediately think of, like, trans erasure as a concept, like people not believing that trans actually exists or that like people who have gender dysphoria are faking it making it up um so that's an interesting um little clue that might be a clue it might also not be a clue but you know i can only read what's on the page i can't know the author's intentions so we're going to take that as a clue that this is talking about a transgender man so you're not actually a boy. I mean, you're not exactly a bundle of light spinning in and out of existence. So a bundle of light spinning in and out of existence is, I mean, that's a, I guess a reference to a photon. And I find that as an interesting metaphor. So you're not exactly a photon talking about a boy. You can't be a boy. I mean, you're not really a photon, which... Now I'm like, okay, so how how do I think about a photon metaphorically and a boy metaphorically and put them together? So, um, I mean, photons are... God, this is hard. This is like a riddle, dude. How are photons and boys the same way? A bundle of light spinning in and out of existence. This genuinely might just be a mystery I have to live in here as, as I go forward. So I, we're going to ignore that line because I genuinely have no idea what it means, and that makes me stupid, but that's okay. It's fine to not know things. You can ask questions and not have them answered. Um, so, I mean, you're not exactly a bundle of light spinning in and out of existence or as structured and scientific as a constellation, which we already know from the beginning of the poem aren't really that structured or scientific because they're culturally defined. So... A constellation is recognized as a constellation, and since it's regarded as a fact, I feel like that's a sarcastic line. Since it's regarded as a fact, there's no gray area or argument against this. I feel like that's a really sarcastic three lines right there. And so um, this callback to a structured and scientific as a constellation is kind of... Um, it's already been broken down by the first part of the poem. That, that argument right there. You're not structured, you're not scientific like constellation. That is a argument against the realness of this boy that has already been deconstructed by the first part of this poem, which I think is really fun and really cool. That's an interesting structure for this poem to take. The, the author the, does not give the 
the reasons that this person's not actually a boy and then deconstructs those like an argument. No, she de- he or she deconstructs the argument and then gives the argument. Um, I don't know. I think that's really interesting. That's a really interesting attack here. And then finally, it's not like you're the macrocosm that brought us all here. Um, I, I, so I might be a little bit reaching to understand this. This was a line that was also very hard for me to understand. I thought about this for a little bit and I've come up with a, with a, with a solution to the riddle. I mean, that's not how you should think about poetry, but I think I understand what the author is saying here, but it's also kind of vague. So it's hard to say. It's not like you're the macrocosm. So the definition of macrocosm is not very revealing on what this is. I had it up on Webster. Actually, I'll bring it up. I'll look it up on Google right now. You're going to hear me type in in a second. Defin... Ah! Mistype. Definition of macrocosm. Because I've already forgotten the definition. I literally had it looked up. I didn't put it in my notes, though, because that was stupid. Um, Macrocosm. Definition. The great world, colon, universe. Two, a complex that is a large-scale reproduction of one of its constituents. So basically, you're not the macrocosm, which I guess is trying to say you're not the universe. It's not like you're the universe that brought us all here. It's not like you're the greater world that brought us all here. To me, this makes me think, okay, talking about reproduction, uh, like you don't have real reproductive capability. Again, I feel like that's a clue that the speaker is a transgender man. So, I mean, I really don't have an actual reason for thinking it's not like you're the universe that brought us like here is talking about reproduction. It's just, it feels like that's what it's talking about. And I don't have any proof from that line. But I don't know what else that line could be talking about. Maybe I'm not being creative enough in my thinking or like I'm not thinking, you know, my my, my view is too limited. Maybe I got some blinders on, but that is what immediately came to my mind. And that's just what I'm going to have to go with because I can't think of anything else it could be. It's just the reason I'm not like very certain of it where I'm not very definitive is that it it does seem like a very vague line. I I can't like the definition of macrocosm doesn't really seem to fit into that line in any neat way. And maybe there's another definition of macrocosm that fits in better that's not in Webster's dictionary that I don't have access to. And that's maybe one of the problems with my own fundamental knowledge of language and words which, you know, that's on me, not the author. But yeah, I just want to finally, before we end, talk about the the ending of this poem, which is, I'll smile at them just enough to let a galaxy spill out, which is, I, I don't know what this is basically saying, because a galaxy, like, I so I kind of have an image of my mind of a person kind of just flashing a really bright smile at someone and, like, which I think is what the author was intending to convey with this. Um, the problem I have is with the word galaxy because one is not something that's been referenced earlier in the poem, so it's not an image that I have a connection to already um, within the context of this specific poem. And like a galaxy feels like a very, like maybe overly bright, um, overly bright object to reference in this context. I would have maybe said starry smile or like, I don't, I don't know. Like, it's actually a really interesting thing for me to think about right now because using like, you could have said, I'll smile at them just enough to let a starry smile spill out or I'll smile at them just enough to let a star um, shine through, which would have maybe some rhythmic or um, possibly, uh, it would have some consonants to it. So it would maybe have some more rhythmic um, funness to it, more rhythmic funk, just nicer to say, um, versus I'll smile at them just enough to let a galaxy spill out, which is also a very bright object in the sky, and I don't know, like, I mean, that's, that's a, I'm trying to understand why the author specifically chose galaxy versus starry, 
and it's it's a, this is like a conundrum that I, I just like I'm making for myself I guess but I don't know it's an interesting thing to consider like are you team galaxy or are you team Scudari? I'm creating a false dichotomy here there's a million words that could have been used here but obviously galaxy and starry both fit within the cosmic paradigm of this poem so you know cool um I'm not really going to dwell on this any further. I feel like I'm being nitpicky, and I don't really want to be nitpicky because, I don't know, it's just, I don't know, a bit dickish. So, with that, we are going to end and move on to the next poem. But before I do move on to the next poem, I just want to quickly read the bio of this author because it's very interesting. This is a poem that was written by Jasper Hardin, and Jasper Hardin is a poet and visual artist who lives in St. Paul, Minnesota. They competed in the 2018 Rust Belt competition. They have work published in the Rising Phoenix Review, The Mighty and What Are Birds Journal. They are the founder of the new Explicit Literary Journal, which is specifically for non-speaking and semi-disabled writers and visual artists. So if you have not heard of the Explicit Literary Journal, you should go ahead and check it out. I believe the website is explicitliteraryjournal.com, and... On there, they are accepting submissions. So if you are a non-speaking or semi-speaking disabled writer or visual artist, go ahead. I would strongly encourage you to go submit. With all of that said, I want to point out one interesting thing about this bio is that there are no gender-specific pronouns. It says they competed in the 2018 Rust Belt competition. They have work published in the Rising Phoenix Review. So... This, I, when I was reading this poem, I was trying to look at the author's bio to see maybe if that gave a clue as to what the gender identity of the speaker of this poem was, but even in that, it could not be found. So, I again, I have my assumption from the poem of the gender identity of the speaker, but I really have no way of knowing, and there's just kind of this vagueness there that leaves me with this sense of, like, the speaker really wants to get the point across that, like possibly gender identity is something that is made up or transient or not constant something to think about something to consider with all that said we're going to move on to the next poem we got another banger coming up stay tuned the next poem that we got featured today here on the podcast is a poem about masculinity, uh, which is a subject that I don't feel is very often talked about in modern, contemporary, uh, undergraduate magazines. It's something that I think we really should be grappling with more, uh, especially because I, th- I think there's just a lack of male poets publishing out there. And so I, I'm just really excited, honestly, to find a poem that talks about masculinity. And I mean, obviously, I'm very interested in masculinity because, you know, I'm a man. And uh, so it's something that I'm really happy is being talked about. I may not see this exact same experience in my life, but that's okay. It's about getting an amalgam of the experiences of of men and expressing it in artistic form. And that's what I really liked about this poem. And I'll admit I'm biased, but, you know, I don't care. Y'all can deal with it. So I'm just going to read the poem, and then we're going to talk about it. And, I mean, that's the normal, I guess, uh, state of affairs for this podcast, so I'll just shut up and read it. This is Paternal by Eli Makovetsky. I awake in a fistful of vodka, a pickaxe asking for the stars mapped on my back and earmarked from the cold. He was a daisy until he got trained while snow crunched underfoot and snow hut velvet on the tooth. Enlisted into an orphanage, a bomb crushed him colorless. I wonder if my cousin was light blue. If you let me run away from the feast, sexed like real men who drink vodka. For manhood, the chill brought through spit left on repurposed cigarettes arranged in a crystal chandelier. They hung from the stomach of a bear that warmed our ceilings. Taken from your bed, feet touch wood stolen from another mammal. Upon immigration, the lake was frozen in time with a capital T, as in Tis, a life-providing instrument. And the trees held the same silence that your body knew. So, first of all, I mean, right away, I think one of the great things about this poem is how imagistic it is. And this is also one of the confusing parts of the poem, or, like, one of the more difficult-to-understand aspects, but... And I'll get more into that in a little bit, but... He starts off the poem by saying, I awake in a fistful of vodka, a pickaxe asking for the stars, mapped on my back and earmarked from the cold. Which is a really... 
I, I mean, obviously, he's got so many great images there. I awaken a fistful of vodka. Each line is its own image. And second line, a pickaxe asking for the stars. Third line, mapped on my back. Fourth line, an ear marked from the cold. Each of those is so beautiful in and of themselves, but it's also hard to make sense of them as a whole group, which is, I guess, one of my criticisms of the poem. But I don't know if I really want to criticize the poem because, like, I like you have too many images in your poem. Like, that's never a bad thing to have too many images to make it too concrete or two things. But the the I, yeah, I guess just the the issue I have is that in a way it almost seems vague because of how specific it is, and that these images don't seem to make sense as a whole within that group. But I don't want to like, I that that might just because I haven't spent enough time with this poem yet. I mean, I've read it uh, before, I've written down notes on it, and like I'm trying to like figure it out. But like I don't want to like. So, like, I want you all to know, like, right now, like, I haven't figured out this poem as if that's, like, a thing that you do, but, like, you know, there there's a lot of room in this poem to read into these images and, like, really think about them, dwell on them, digest them, but there's so many that, like, I haven't had the time to really, like, think and feel and, like, understand each of these individual lines, so, like, I'll, I mean, I'll just take the first one. I awake in a fistful of vodka. Like, that's such a weird image you know like i was yeah the, the the character in this poem was asleep and they wake up in a fistful of vodka one you don't really have fistfuls of vodka i mean you think about it like you have bottles and glasses of vodka like but like no one holds vodka in their hand so awaking like i'm just imagining like a person really gripping tightly like water like or like vodka, like any kind of liquid like it just falls out, right? So I awaken a fistful of vodka. Like, how does that make sense, like, metaphorically? Like, that's such a weird line that, like, you have to really dwell on it in order to kind of get the rich complexities of that image. And so I think that's a great thing that this author is doing. It also makes it very hard to read and understand. So, you know, I I want to make this clear. This is not, a like, a criticism but it is something that is a barrier of entry, I suppose, because I'm still trying to figure out what that line means as I'm talking about it. But it's so cool that, like, I don't want to say it's, it's well, because it's not a bad line. It's a good it's a good line, objectively speaking. It, like, has so much rhythm. It's so concrete. It's just the concreteness of that image doesn't make sense in a physical way. And so that's where I'm struggling to understand. And I mean, let's just like keep looking at this first stanza and just like wondering about this because I, I think this is a really beautiful stanza for a lot of reasons. So, I mean, like he says, a pickaxe asking for the stars, second line, a pickaxe asking for the stars. Like, what the hell does that mean? You know, on it, like, but it's also like such a beautiful line because you have a, uh, you start with that first like schwa and it's like a uh, pickaxe asking for the stars it's got such beautiful consonants and assonance like moves on to the next line mapped on my back oh my god like an ear marked from the like it just flows so well you know like you read that and it's so beautiful it's i awaken a fistful of vodka a pickaxe asking for the stars mapped on my back an ear marked from the cold it's so beautiful and yet it's just like as I'm reading it, it's like how how am I supposed to go through the stanza line by line and figure out what these images are? What what am I supposed to be visualizing as I read the stanza? And that's it's such a difficult thing to ask, I guess, because I, I have no idea, not even a bare minimum clue. Like if I th if I'm thinking about a pickaxe asking for the stars, what does that even mean? What does that look like in my head? A pickaxe asking for the stars, like metaphorically even, like how do you make sense of that? A pickaxe asking for the stars mapped on my back, the stars that are mapped on his back. So it's the stars that are mapped on his back and earmarked from the cold. So they're, they're places being held by the cold. Like, what the f f I mean, what the fuck? What is this? What is this? Genuinely, like, it's, it's amazing and weird and crazy. And I'm just going to move on from this first stanza. Because, like, 
it's so mysterious and it's so rhythmic and it's so beautiful to say, but I have no fucking clue what it's even talking about. Like, it's so weird in its imagery that, like, I just, I just got, I, it keeps me wanting more. Like, I just want to keep reading that stanza over and over and over again until I know it inside and out. And it's, like, written on, like, the the back of my hand and blood or something. I don't know, something poetic. You, you, you put your own noun in there at the end. Anyway, I'm going to move on to the second stanza because we don't have enough time, I guess, to just talk about that first, just geek out about that first stanza for the next million years. So second, second stanza. He was a daisy until he got trained while snow crunched underfoot and snow huffed velvet on the tooth. Which now is just like another like what the fuck on top of that because so we started this poem with an I awake and a fistful of vodka and the second stanza is he was a daisy. We go from first person in the first stanza to third person in the second stanza. So what is this change in perspective? Why are we changing in perspective? What is going on? Like, oh my god. But it's still such a beautiful stanza. It's like, he was a daisy until he got trained while snow crunched underfoot and snow huffed velvet on the tooth. I mean, that's just such a beautiful... Those are just two beautiful lines right after another. Trained while snow crunched underfoot and snow huffed velvet on the tooth. So first of all, you got the repeated rhythm of snow crunched and then you have snow huffed so it's a uh, snow followed by an ed uh verb and snow so snow crunched snow huffed both of those rhyme with each other obviously and then you have each of those lines is closed off with a double o word so foot and then tooth even though those don't directly rhyme it's like still like really nice like i rhyme and then also like tooth foot foot tooth like it, it kind of like reflects off each other. Those sounds kind of meld together in a way. But I mean, I don't want to like be too reachy here. But those still work really well with each other. But the, the, the it's just the problem is like I can't picture these in my mind. He who is the he in this sentence? Who is the he in this stanza? He was a daisy until he got trained. Who was training him? What was training him? Why was he being trained? While snow crunched underfoot and snow huffed velvet on the tooth, which creates this wonderful image and sense of winter and, like, coldness and cruelness, but I don't know what it's leading to. I don't know what it's referencing to, you know? And so, next stanza, enlisted into an orphanage. A bomb crushed him colorless. I wonder if my cousin was, like, blue. If you let me run away from the feast, sexed like real men who drink vodka... Like, what the fuck is this? Enlisted into an orphanage. A bomb crushed him colorless. I wonder if my cousin was light blue. If you let me run away from the feast, sex to like real men who drink vodka. So, the he from stanza two is enlisted into an orphanage. A bomb crushes him colorless. And then we switch back to the first person and it's like, I wonder if my cousin was light blue. If you now we're now we got a second person in here. If you, the the you is the third character of this story, but maybe it's also a second character. If you so, actually, let me just like really quickly make sure we have all the characters straight because there's no names used in this poem, only pronouns, which makes everything really confusing to me. So in the first stanza we have an I. That's the first character. In the second stanza, we have a he, which is the second character of the poem. And in the third stanza, we have a you, which is the third character of the poem. But these might all be the same person at different points in time. These could be two different people, or could be one, uh, like, could be three different people. Like, who knows? There's no way to know from the context of this poem. So he says, If you let me run away from the feast, sexed like real men who drink vodka. For manhood, the chill brought through spit left on repurposed cigarettes arranged in a crystal chandelier. They hung from the ceiling, from the stomach of a bear that warmed our ceilings, taken from your bed, feet touch, wood stolen from another mammal. Like, where is it? Like, what is happening? For So, after we get sex like real men who drink vodka, we get for manhood, the chill brought through spit left on repurposed cigarettes. For manhood, for manhood, for manhood, for manhood, the chill brought through spit left 
The chill brought through spit left on repurposed cigarettes arranged in a crystal chandelier. Okay, so I'm trying to figure out what that that stanza is right now. So the chill brought through spit left on repurposed cigarettes. So the the literal spit left on cigarettes is poetically arranged in a crystal chandelier that hung from the stomach of a bear that warmed our ceilings. Taken from your bed, feet touch wood stolen from another mammal. Taken from your bed, feet. I'm going to start placing Im, um, implied pronouns into these so that we can actually make more sense of this. Because I think part of the reason it's hard to understand is because it's written in a certain way, which is very poetic and very rhythmic, and I, I still love it. It's just hard to understand. So uh, for manhood, the chill brought through the spit left on repurposed cigarettes, which was arranged in a crystal chandelier that hung from the stomach of a bear that warmed our ceilings. You were taken from your bed, your feet touched wood stolen from another animal. Okay, so that that makes more sense. I can understand the um context or like the the scene of this of these two stanzas. This is two stanzas. Um so I can understand the scene of these two stanzas. I still have no idea what the hell it's talking about to be quite honest. But I'm it's still so beautiful that I can't I can't dislike it. Like, there's a certain sense, like, generally people tend to dislike things that they don't understand fully, or, like, if there's a poem that I don't get, I usually don't like it. But this is, like, I don't understand this poem, but I still love it. It's just so beautiful. And the way that it's written, and the the literal words on the page as they string together, like, notes on on a fucking score, you know, like, it's just... It it just moves so seamlessly. This is like a fucking jazz improv, you know? Like, I, I can't... Like, the, the, the skill of the author is so apparent that I just feel stupid for not getting it because I feel like it's obvious in a certain sense, but it's like... Or maybe it's like just an abstract painting that doesn't really... Necess- like it has a meaning to the author but it's not really supposed to be knowable it's just supposed to be appreciated for aesthetic beauty although that's i mean i don't want to talk about abstract painting because i don't know anything about a- i don't know anything about visual arts i'll be quite honest i'm kind of an ignoramus but like the the actual like is this just like kind of dadaist like just fucking vomit on a page that's just somehow really beautiful in in the end even if it doesn't really have a meaning or like is the meaning like what is the meaning like where is it where where can i read and like find in between those lines like the 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 invisible strings that tie it all together like string theory you know like where's the uh, universal theory of paternal uh the grand or the grand unifying theory of paternal this poem that's what i'm trying to find and i don't i don't see it in here i don't find it I'm just going to read the last um, stanza and read it, and yeah, we'll talk about it. Uh, Upon immigration, the lake was frozen in time with a capital T, as in teat, a life-providing instrument. That is in parentheses, by the way. It's like an aside. So, in capital T, parentheses, as in teat, a life-providing instrument, end parentheses. And the trees held the same silence that your body knew, which is also like a very this is a very physical scene upon immigration the lake froze or was frozen in time with the capital t and the trees held the same silence that your body knew i like i kind of understand what's going on in this stanza so it says upon immigration the lake was frozen in time with the capital t i assume the lake was the the first place of this character and I think this last stanza actually, like, my mind is just turning, right? The, the gears are spinning, like, 300 miles an hour right now, because I feel like the rest of the poem is kind of starting to open up a little bit to me, and it's, it's starting to reveal its secrets to me a little bit. Because the... the okay, like, holy... Like, okay, so... The character in this last stanza, I think, is clearly the father of the... I in the first stanza. Okay, so the title of the poem is, of course, Paternal by Eli Makovetsky. Paternal, father, means fatherly, basically. So, wow. Okay, so yeah, so 
the character in, in the last stanza, upon immigration, there's an implied he here. There's an implied he. So upon this person immigrating, the lake was frozen in time with a capital T as in teat, a life-providing instrument. And, your, and trees held the same sounds that your body knew. This is describing the scene of the place that the father immigrated from. So if you go back to the beginning of the poem, it says, I awake in a fistful of vodka, a pickaxe, asking for the stars mapped on my back into earmarked from the cold. I'm almost for sure thinking this is talking about a dream that the speaker of the poem had. He is now awoken, and now he's describing the dream. And I don't, I still don't really know what a pickaxe asking for the stars is, but we're, I'm not going to worry about that right now because I'm, I'm, this poem is like lighting up in front of me. So second stanza, he was a daisy. Now he's switching back to his dad or his, yeah, his dad back when he was young. He said he was a daisy until he got trained while snow crunched underfoot and snow huffed velvet on the tooth enlisted into an orphanage. A bomb crushed him colorless. I wonder if my cousin was light blue. If you let me run away from the feast, sexed like real men who drink vodka. So, the father from the third, second stanza, he was a daisy. That that second character, he was a daisy. That man was uh, put into an orphanage. A bomb crushed him colorless. A bomb being some kind of, I maybe, like, I think it's actually a literal bomb. Um... So he lived in a city that got bombed, I guess, in World War II, most likely. Or is uh, maybe something else. This might not even be World War II. This might be something way more recent, something from a different time period. There have been a lot of bombings in Europe. Who knows? Who knows what it is? He's in an orphanage now because a bomb crushed him colorless. I wonder if my cousin was light blue, which I think implies that a lot of this family was killed at this time. I wonder if my cousin was light blue. This person has never met their cousin, ostensibly. So, and he says, If you let me run away from the feast, sexed like real men who drink vodka. I don't know how that fits in with the rest of the stanza, because it says, I wonder if my cousin was light blue. If you let me run away from the feast, sexed like real men who drink vodka. I'm not going to worry about that image. That's probably very important, but I'm not going to worry about it right now. This is the fourth stanza. For manhood, the chill brought through spit left on repurposed cigarettes arranged in a crystal chandelier. They hung from the stomach of a bear that warmed our ceilings. Taken from your bed, feet touch wood stolen from another mammal. I'm going to go back and read that again. They hung from the stomach of a ceiling, the stomach of a bear that warmed our ceilings. Taken from your bed. Where, where is this bed? Okay, so this is, this is the next question that I have. Taken from your bed is who was taken from the bed? Was it the first person, the guy who's waking up in stanza one with a, in a fistful of vodka, or is that the he that was enlisted into an orphanage? I'm not sure. Taken from your bed, feet touch. Is it I was taken from your bed, my feet touch wood stolen from another mammal, or is it you were taken from your bed, your feet touch wood stolen from another mammal? That implied pronoun is so important, but it could be I or a he. It, and it's impossible to know. I, 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 I don't want to say impossible. It's hard to know with, from this context. Taken from your bed, feet touch wood stolen from another mammal. Upon immigration, the lake was frozen in time with a capital T, as in teat, a life-providing instrument. So I, I'm still not 100% on this poem. I still don't know what it's all talking about, what it all means. But I'm so interested in it. My my, what initially appeared to make absolutely zero sense. And believe me, I had read this poem like five to ten times. I had gone through it line by line a lot. And now it's just kind of opening up right now. And I feel like I'm just at the cusp of understanding. I'm still not there yet, but I'm a lot closer than I was. Like when I started recording this exactly 21 minutes and 55 seconds ago. I still haven't found the grand unifying theory of this poem, but I'm getting a lot closer. And I think just like recapping what we've learned so far, he's awoken. The, 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 the speaker of the poem has awoken in a fistful of vodka in the first stanza. He was dreaming of his father in the second stanza, who was enlisted into an orphanage. A bomb crushed him colorless, which I think just means killed a bunch of his family. And then there's some stuff I don't understand. 
and then someone wakes up or someone gets up from a bed and their feet touch the floor and then upon the, this person has the the father of the speaker has immigrated to a new country and after he left the lake was frozen in time with a capital T and the trees held the same silence that his body knew i still don't quite have a grasp on the on the meaning of this poem but it's just so cool how it's been intricately laid out it's so very clear to me now that there is some kind of internal uh, logic. There's an internal puzzle here that can be solved, and I, I don't want to view this poem as a puzzle. It is a work of art and should be appreciated as a, a glimpse into somebody else's perspective, but because it's a perspective that is very different from my own, it's been very hard to decode this uh, poem, and that's what it can be sometimes when you're looking in through someone else's worldview. It's hard to keep your... Uh, it's hard to walk a mile in another person's shoes, basically, is what I'm trying to say. It's hard to take on someone else's perspective when you've never had that perspective before in the past. But that's why poetry is so important. It's because it allows us to go and uh, see the world through another man's eyes or another woman's eyes and experience the world in a way that we will never experience the world in and of our own uh, bodies. So with all that being said, I'm going to leave this poem off here absolutely amazing i'm going to read the author's bio and you can go check them out on you know runestone journal or wherever else they've been published you might just google them or i might just look them up on twitter slash instagram see if he's got anything on there anyways eli makovetsky is a senior at brown university pursuing a double major in literary arts and psychology aside from his love of poetry eli spends his time running the underground a nonprofit coffee shop and getting out of providence to go hiking so that is Paternal by Eli Makovetsky. I will see you all in the next segment. Thank you all for listening so much. Your support is, of course, so genuinely necessary for the success of this podcast that I just can't thank you all enough. Of course, you're going to be able to find the next episode of the podcast here on SoundCloud next week on Friday. You can also follow me on Twitter at UnionHour to be notified or look at my website, SUPoetryHour.com, where you will find blog posts and updates on the pod. Uh, soon we will be on the iTunes podcast app as well as the Google Music podcast. Hopefully, I mean, it's all a little bit loosey-goosey up in the air at this point, but look, it's coming. It's coming at some point. You can find and support the Runestone Journal by going to their website at therunestonejournal.com. That's runestonejournal.com. Or by following them on Twitter at runestone underscore lit or on Instagram at runestone underscore journal. With all the poems read and all of the socials plugged, I'll be signing off until next week. So until the next time we meet, this is the Student Union Poetry Hour.